Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're going to finish the chapter this morning with verses 35 to 51. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. I hope you've turned there, and if you would, please follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your grace now. We know that anytime we come to the scriptures, we need the work of the Holy Spirit. We need illumination, that we would be able to believe the things that are true, that we would stand firm in that truth, and that Christ would be glorified in us and through us. And so we ask for the Holy Spirit's help now to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Father, please keep me from error. Please grant your church discernment that we would know the things that are true, Father, and not only know them, but hold fast to them and indeed be kept safe by them until the very last day. We pray, God, right now, confident that you hear us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, 10 years ago, Crossway published a book entitled, What is the Mission of the Church? What is the Mission of the Church? The book was written by two pastors seeking to answer a fundamental question. With so many needs in the world and with so many good things that a church could do, what exactly is the mission of the church? What is the one thing? What is the main thing 
that a church must be about in order to fulfill her God-given task. And with courage and clarity, the book's answer was straightforward. The mission of the church, quite simply, is to make disciples. The one thing, the one thing a church must do is proclaim the gospel in the power of the Spirit so that sinners are saved, baptized, gathered into the church, and taught to obey all that Jesus commands. Even with so many needs in the world, the one thing the church must be about is the main thing, discipleship. For that is the mission of the church. Now, on the one hand, you might be thinking, why was it necessary to write a book answering that question? Isn't that exactly what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28, that we should go, were to go into the world and to make disciples of all nations? Why was it necessary to write a book about that? Isn't that what Jesus told us to do? Yes, it is what Jesus told us to do. So the book's thesis was pretty simple, you might say. But on the other hand, things are not so simple. Distraction is as much a danger to the church as unfaithfulness. So the perennial challenge of the church is to remain focused on the mission given to us by the Lord Jesus in every single age of the church's life. We must resist the pull of other good things and instead remain focused on the main thing, which is to make disciples to the glory of God. What does this have to do with John chapter 1? Well, quite a lot, actually. Our passage this morning describes the early days of Jesus' ministry. And what do we find Jesus doing in these early days? Calling and making disciples. Of course, the disciples in this passage are not fully formed. They still have a lot to learn about Jesus. Their discipleship is not finished in John chapter 1, but it does begin here in John chapter 1. And so the core point remains. From his earliest days, the Lord Jesus called people to follow him. From his earliest days, the Lord Jesus was about this one thing, making disciples, bringing people to obey his teaching. Were there other things that Jesus could do? Yes, of course. But there was the one thing that he must do, the main thing, the mission of the church, Make disciples. And in that sense, this is a very important passage for the life of the local church. What is it that we should prioritize week in and week out as a congregation? What should be our priority? Exactly what we see here. The calling and making of disciples. That should be our priority. Are there other things that we could do? Even other good things that we could do? Yes, there are. But this is the main thing that we must do. Make disciples to the glory of God. We're reminded here of our mission, and that's to call people to follow Jesus and to teach them to do so. To that end, here's where we're going to go today. As we study this passage, I want us to note three marks of a faithful disciple. What does a faithful disciple look like? Three marks in this passage. These are not earth-shattering I don't do earth-shattering sermons. These are just foundational. 
These marks began with the early days of Jesus' ministry, and therefore, a wise church pays attention and prioritizes these marks as well. So, three marks of a faithful disciple. The first mark begins with John the Baptist, and it runs through the whole passage. Faithful disciples proclaim the truth about Jesus. That's mark number one. Faithful disciples proclaim the truth about Jesus. Verse 35 tells us that a new day has come, but we still find John the Baptist preaching the same message. Look again at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. It seems that John the Baptist was more persistent than he was creative. It's another day he preaches the same message. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the substitutionary sacrifice for his people. The Lamb whose blood delivers God's people from the wrath of to come. That was John the Baptist's testimony, and he was content to preach the same message day after day. But it's striking in this verse that John the Baptist even proclaimed this truth to his own disciples. Did you catch that in verse 36? John the Baptist is not worried about the size of his own ministry. He wants his own disciples to see that Jesus is the point. He tells them, Behold the Lamb of God. We talked about this last week, but it bears repeating again because we can't hear it enough. Humility is essential for discipleship. Humility is essential for making disciples. You can't help other people follow Jesus if you're so concerned with them following you. I heard a pastor say once that you can't be clever and make Christ look great at the same time. And I'll paraphrase that for our passage and say, you can't be self-consumed and make disciples for Jesus. It just doesn't go together. Humility is essential for discipleship. John the Baptist models that here. With humility, he proclaims the truth about Jesus to his own followers. And the effect is just what God intends. John's disciples begin to follow Jesus instead of John. Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus. Friends, those two disciples are not abandoning John the Baptist. They're listening to him. They're doing precisely what he wants them to do. They hear the message that Jesus is the Lamb of God and they conclude, we should follow this man. And John the Baptist says, yes, you should follow him. They hear the truth, they make the connection with Jesus, and they begin to follow the Lamb. In verse 38, there's a short exchange between these two men and Jesus. You see it there in verse 38. Jesus asks, what are you seeking? Which is actually a very good question to ask in discipleship. What are you looking for? What are you after? What do you want? What are you seeking? It's a question that puts the responsibility back on the listener, forcing him or her to think more deeply. What are you seeking? Here in John chapter 1, these two men it seems, don't really know how to answer. So they say, we want to know where you're staying. And Jesus invites them to come and to see, verse 39. They come and they stay with him. The point here is that the road of discipleship for these two men has begun. They have taken the first step in following the Lord. John the Baptist proclaimed the truth about Jesus, and these two men followed him. That's not the end of the story, though. 
this is a very rich passage, and here we begin to see why. The same process, proclaiming the truth, following Jesus, that same process now repeats with other people in in the passage. So we're just going to survey the rest of the verses real quickly. We're going to come back and study them in more depth in a moment. But right now, I just want you to notice how the process repeats. Look at verse 40. We learn that Andrew is one of those two who begins to follow Jesus. And what is the first thing that Andrew does? Verse 41, he finds his brother Simon and Andrew proclaims to him the truth about Jesus. Look at verse 41 into verse 42. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. That's a profound message, isn't it? Andrew tells his brother that Jesus is Israel's promised king and deliverer. This is the Christ. We found the Christ. Now, does Andrew know the full extent of what he has just said? No, not yet. At this point, Andrew speaks better than he knows, but he still speaks. He still tells the truth. So do you see the pattern? Andrew heard the truth and followed Jesus. Now Andrew proclaims the truth so that others will follow Jesus. It's the same pattern. And it repeats again in verse 43. Look there, Jesus calls another disciple, Philip, who follows Jesus. What does Philip then do? Verse 45, he finds Nathanael and proclaims the truth to him. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Again, it's a profound message. Philip says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Everything from the law to the prophets reaches its pinnacle in Jesus. Does Philip understand all that that means? No, not yet. But he speaks what he does know, and what he knows is the truth. So that by the end of the passage, verse 49, even Nathanael is ready to be a disciple. So notice the pattern. Philip follows Jesus, and now Philip proclaims the truth and calls others to follow Jesus. Friends, I hope you see the takeaway here. I'm belaboring it so that you'll see it. John the Baptist fulfilled his ministry by pointing other people to Jesus, and then these early disciples carry on in the same work by proclaiming the truth and calling other people to Jesus. It's a small picture of what we have been called to do down through the ages in the life of the church. Through the testimony of faithful disciples, God brings people to know Christ. God brings people to follow Jesus. Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Philip brought Nathaniel to Jesus. And someone brought you and me to Jesus. Very often, in God's gracious providence, this pattern does begin with our closest relationships, with family and with friends. Most often it begins in our own homes. If we took a survey today, most of us probably heard the gospel for the first time from a parent. And if not from a parent, then probably from a Sunday school teacher at church. Most of the time these things begin in our closest relationships. So I'm just going to put some questions before you that I want you to think about. Where has the Lord given you an open door to speak the truth about Jesus? Where? Dads and moms, how are you faithfully putting the truth about Jesus before your children? In your own neighborhoods, 
Where is the open door to faithfully carry on what we see in this passage? In your own neighborhoods, where is the opportunity for you to join the ranks of Andrew and Philip who heard the truth and then told other people about the truth? Where? You're the most strategic Christian in your own neighborhood. Where has the Lord given you an open door to do just this, to speak the truth about Jesus so that God calls people to himself. Friends, what I want to emphasize to you this morning is that all of those seemingly small opportunities are actually not small at all. The relationship that you have where you can communicate spiritual truth, the children that you have been given, if God has given you children that are in your home every day, everyday life, the neighborhood that you live, those things may seem small and ordinary to you, and the work of discipleship would say they're not ordinary at all. They're the arena where God's providence gets worked out in people's lives so that someday, God willing, someone will have the testimony of, yeah, my neighbor believed in Jesus and told me and I believed and now I'm telling you. Those seemingly small things are not small at all. No circumstance or relationship in your life is accidental. There's like eight tons of theology in that sentence. No circumstance or relationship in your life is accidental. God has ordained each one so that you can do what Jesus' disciples have been doing from the very beginning, speaking the truth about Jesus and praying for God to make disciples from that. So where can you speak? Where can you speak? Faithful disciples proclaim the truth about Jesus. I pray that God would use us in the same way. That's Mark number one. So far, we've talked a good bit about following Jesus, but we haven't defined what that looks like. That's the big question, isn't it? What does it mean, actually, to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be his disciple? That's where we're going to turn in Mark number 2. Faithful disciples submit to the authority of Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means that you submit to the authority of Jesus. In this passage, as each man comes to Jesus, the Apostle John, writing, makes it clear that Jesus has all authority. Discipleship, in other words, is not defined by the disciple. It's defined by the master, by the teacher. Jesus has all authority, and his authority is is the touchstone for everything that follows. Notice with me how Jesus' authority is displayed over and over in this passage First of all, Jesus has the authority to define who you are. Look at verse 42. Andrew brings his brother to Jesus. Notice what Jesus does. Verse 42. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. In the Old Testament, God often renamed people. And he did so whenever there was a particular purpose or plan that God had for that person's life. So think of Abram, who becomes Abraham, Jacob, who becomes Israel. Those were displays of God's grace, but they were also displays of God's authority. By renaming someone, God was saying, I determine who you are. You are who I say that you are. And the same is true here in John chapter 1. Jesus renames Simon as a display of his authority. It's actually quite staggering. If you think about it, Jesus has just met this man. And yet, he has the authority over this man's 
life. He's already demonstrating that he will set the course for how Simon lives. From the outset then, this is what Simon Peter will learn, and he'll have to learn it again and again and again. Jesus defines who you are. And following him means that you submit to his authority. Along with that, Jesus also has the authority to define how you live. In verse 43, the passage enters another day, but Jesus' authority remains on display. Notice what happens in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. The verb there in verse 43 means more than simply follow me on a journey. It also carries the sense of submitting your life to someone else's teaching. So that your way of life is now defined by what the teacher says, by what the master says. So consider the self-conscious authority of Jesus at this point. We don't know if Philip has met Jesus before or if he's heard about him before. He's from the same town as Simon and I mean as Andrew and Peter verse 44 tells us. So maybe Philip has heard about Jesus before. But even if he has, notice the self-conscious authority of Jesus without any hesitation, no hesitation at all, no explanation, no caveat. Jesus says, "Uproot your life and follow me." Change everything about how you live and let my word define what you do. That's what Jesus says to Philip. And Philip follows. And it remains the same today, friends. Fundamentally, fundamentally, to follow Jesus means that his authority defines your life. His teaching defines how you live. His word defines what you must believe. That's discipleship at its core. This is why the Great Commission in Matthew 28 says that we're to go into all the nations, baptizing people and teaching them to do what? Obey Jesus. Why is that essential to discipleship? Because that's how Christ's lordship over the world is displayed in my life and in yours as we submit our living to the authority of Christ. His authority defines how we live. And listen to me, friends. This is why disciples have to be people who are saturated in the Word of God, in the Scriptures. Where is Jesus' authority found right now? Jesus is not bodily present with us. He's not physically present in this church. So where is His authority found? In His Word. In His Word written and given to us through the testimony of the apostles and the prophets. This is the authority of Christ in our midst. And so whether it's an entire church or an individual Christian, the way that you submit to Jesus' authority is by living in submission to the Bible. By taking it in every single day. Friends, are you growing both in your understanding of the Bible, but also your obedience to it? Are you not only a hearer of the word, but also a doer? That's not tangential to being a disciple. It's essential to submit our lives to the way of Christ. And look, taking in God's word on a regular basis, it's sometimes called a spiritual discipline. And I understand why people say that, because it does take discipline to be regularly interacting with the word of God. It does take discipline to do that. But taking in the Bible day by day is not merely a discipline. It's life. It's life. 
nourishes the soul. And so it's the heartbeat of discipleship, really, to know Christ through his word and to submit to his word day by day, obeying where he calls you to obey. Disciples submit to the authority of Jesus even in how they live. There's one more piece to Jesus' authority in this passage, and it takes us back to Simon Peter. Jesus has the authority to transform you to be who he calls you to be. He has the authority to transform your life. There's a fascinating dynamic in verse 42. At least I think it's fascinating. The name Peter, you probably know, means rock. But if you remember anything about Simon Peter's testimony in the Gospels, he does not always live up to that name, does he? The low point in Peter's life comes in John chapter 18 when he denies Jesus three times. To state the obvious, that's not very rock-like. And yet, and yet, Jesus knows that that's going to happen and he gives Simon this name anyway. D.A. Carson, in his very helpful commentary on John, points out that this is a reminder of Jesus' authority even his authority to transform disciples into what he calls them to be. Can Peter make himself a rock-solid disciple? No. But Jesus can, and Jesus will. That's the point. To follow Jesus means that each and every day, you have this hope that Jesus is not finished with you. That Jesus has the power to transform you to be who he calls you to be. That Jesus always finishes what he starts. So I want you to see how those last two applications actually work together. What do you need to do day by day as a disciple in order to follow Jesus? You need to submit to his word. Obeying his authority and growing in your following of him. That's fundamental to discipleship. And at the same time, where does your ultimate hope reside? Not in your effort to follow Jesus, but in Jesus' authority to transform you to be what he calls you to be. That's where your ultimate hope resides. That's a great picture of the Christian life. Each day, I seek by faith to walk according to God's word because that's where Jesus' transforming grace is found to change my life. And to make me be who he wants me to be. That's where I find the grace of Christ in his authoritative, life-giving word. Faithful disciples submit themselves to the authority of Jesus. So I pray that our church would be known as a place that delights to obey Christ. That's Mark number two. At this point, the passage takes a turn. So far, we've focused on what we're called to do as faithful disciples. We're called to proclaim the truth about Jesus and we submit to the authority of Jesus. But here at the end, this final mark is not so much something we do, but something that we see. From verses 45 to 51, mark number 3, faithful disciples see the glory of Jesus. Faithful disciples see the glory of Jesus. After hearing Philip's testimony, Nathanael is skeptical. Look at verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Philip said to him, come and see. Nazareth was a rather small town in Jesus' day. It's not very significant in the world's eyes. Even other Galileans, like Nathaniel, looked down on Nazareth, which is why Nathaniel sounds so skeptical. Surely the king of Israel is not going to come from a backwater town like Nazareth. That's what Nathaniel thinks. But Philip prevails. He says, come and see. And Nathaniel, to his credit, decides to go and see for himself. Verse 47, there's another display of Jesus' authority. This time it's one that reveals his glory as God in the flesh. Listen again, verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. What does Jesus mean by this commendation of Nathanael? What does he mean when he says there's no deceit in this Israelite? Well, his point is that Nathaniel is a follower of God without any ulterior motives. Nathaniel is not driven by cunning or guile, as the King James says. Nathaniel doesn't play deceitful games to get what he wants. And Nathaniel's decision in verse 47 to go see Jesus proves Jesus' point. Despite his skepticism, Nathaniel was willing to come and investigate Philip's claims for himself. So Nathaniel is an upfront guy. That's what Jesus means when he says, An Israelite in whom there's no deceit. This is an upfront guy. Now, is Jesus simply flattering Nathaniel? Why does he say this? Is he just flattering him? I don't think so. Rather, I'll argue that Jesus is echoing a passage from the Old Testament of all places. Zephaniah chapter 3, to be exact. It may have been a while since you read the book of Zephaniah. So let me remind you what's going on in that passage. In Zephaniah 3, God is preparing to restore his people. He's preparing to gather his people again to himself so that they will dwell with him. And when God is ready to gather his people in, he says the kind of person that he's going to gather is a follower of God in whom there is no deceit. One whose tongue doesn't speak lies and whose mouth is not giving to deceitful utterances. So make the connection now with John chapter 1. When Jesus commends Nathanael for being an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, Jesus is saying as much about himself as he is about Nathanael. In a a way, Jesus is saying, Nathanael, you wanted to know the truth about who I am? Let me tell you straight away. I'm the one who's going to restore the people of God. I'm the fulfillment of Zephaniah chapter 3. I'm going to commend you as a way of revealing who I am. (laughs) I'm the one who's restoring God's people. That's why Jesus commends him. Nathaniel, however, still has a question. It's the natural question, and it's here that the glory begins to shine. Look at what Nathaniel says. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Again, that's the natural question. These two men have never met. Notice Jesus' answer, verse 47. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Friends, that's divine insight rooted in divine authority, displayed in divine revelation. Jesus is the Word made flesh, the one who made all things. That includes Nathaniel. So as his creator, Jesus has insight into Nathaniel's life. Jesus saw Nathaniel before Nathaniel ever took a step to follow Jesus. 
That sounds like my testimony. Jesus is the Lord, in other words. That's the answer to Nathanael's skepticism. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so Nathanael is stunned into confession. Look at verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That's a messianic confession on Nathanael's part. The title Son of God likely comes from Psalm chapter 2, where the Messiah is seated on the throne of heaven, and God calls him my son. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. This is why Nathanael follows up the title Son of God with King of Israel. He's saying, this is the Messiah. You are the Messiah. Nathanael confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We might think that's a good place for the passage to end. It's not over yet, though. This is remarkable. Nathanael has been given a glimpse of Jesus' glory, but Jesus goes on to say that this is just the beginning. Look at verse 50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Jesus affirms that this is just the beginning for Nathanael and for the other disciples. They have so much more to learn, so much more that they need to see. And I want you to note that word see, brothers and sisters. I think this captures something so incredibly important to discipleship, but it's not something that we always emphasize very well. Discipleship, fundamentally, is following Jesus by faith. It's submitting to His Word, walking in obedience to His commands. That's discipleship. But the road of discipleship, or the process of following Jesus, is fueled by what we see in Jesus Christ. To say it a different way, what keeps us on the road of following Jesus is not our willpower, but Christ's glory revealed to us in the scriptures that we see by faith. Discipleship then is sustained by this daily pursuit of seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ. This is near to my heart, of, this is near to the heart of everything that I believe about preaching. What am I trying to do every Lord's Day when I stand up here and and preach God's Word to you? By God's grace and through the work of the Holy Spirit, I am aiming for you to see glory. Glory. Namely, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's how people are transformed, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we are all transformed from one degree of glory to another until all of our lives become conformed to the image of Christ. See. So Jesus says Nathaniel will see greater things. You're going to see more glory, Jesus says. What are these greater things? Look at verse 51. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opening and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is that about? Is Jesus literally saying that Nathaniel will see a procession of angels coming down out of heaven and going up from Jesus' body? Well, not exactly. Again, Jesus is echoing the Old Testament here. Specifically, a passage from Genesis 28 about Jacob's ladder. Do you remember that scene in Genesis 28? Jacob is fleeing from his brother Esau, and he decides to lay down in a field, and he, he goes to sleep at night with a stone for his pillow. And while he's sleeping, Jacob sees a vision of a ladder from heaven to earth. 
and the angels of God are descending and ascending on the ladder. So when Jacob wakes up, he says, this is the gate of heaven. This is the very house of God, Jacob concludes. And he names the place Bethel, the house of God. It was a moment of revelation in the midst of Jacob's flight from Esau, God pulled back the curtain of of heaven and he said to Jacob, I'm going to give you a glimpse of myself. I'm going to show you what it's like in my presence. That was Genesis 28. Here in John chapter 1, Jesus is saying that God's presence is now opened through him. The angels are going to ascend and descend on Jesus, meaning that Jacob's ladder is now replaced with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the gate of heaven. Jesus is the one who opens God's presence. Jesus is the one who brings God down to humanity by taking on flesh so that he can bring humanity up with him to the Father through faith in his name. Jesus is the source of knowing God. This is repeating what John said in chapter 1. In Jesus Christ, God's covenant faithfulness is revealed finally and fully. All of God's promises are now mediated in and through Jesus Christ. Heaven is opened through Jesus. God's people come into God's presence only through Jesus. That's the greater thing that they're going to see. And this theme of God's presence is going to continue All through the Gospel of John. God is no longer worshipped through the temple. John chapter 2. He's worshipped through Jesus. God is not worshipped on the mountains of Samaria or Jerusalem. John chapter 4. He's worshipped through Jesus. God is approached only through Jesus Christ. That's the greater glory that Nathaniel's going to see. He's going to see the climax of the ages coming to pass. And this man from Nazareth that he shakes his head about. This is the fullness that gives grace upon grace. The disciples will see God-given confirmation that every promise is kept and that those promises are kept in the name of Jesus Christ. The disciples will see glory. Now, Nathaniel and Andrew and Simon and John and all all the other apostles, they saw Jesus in the flesh. So when we say, where did they see glory? They saw it there in flesh and blood. Here's a final question for us. Where do we see that glory? Where does this vision of glory take us? Where do we go in order to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Where do we look? Notice the last title that Jesus uses for himself in this passage. There's been so many titles for Jesus in this passage. Lamb of God, Messiah, Christ, Son of God, King of Israel. Notice the final title. It's the very last phrase in verse 51. The Son of Man. That is Jesus' favorite title for himself. Comes from Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man approaches God and God gives him a kingdom that will never end. Jesus is that son of man, the king who reigns over God's eternal kingdom. But here in John's gospel, where does the son of man receive his glory? Or a better question, where do disciples like us go to see the glory of the son of man? Where do we see it? John 3 verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. The cross, friends, the cross 
is where we go to see the glory of Christ. The cross is where the greater things of verse 51 find their explanation and their fulfillment. Where is God's presence opened to sinners at the cross? Where is God's glory revealed that He is both a God of justice and a God of unspeakable mercy at the cross? If you want to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you have to look at the cross that's what disciples, faithful disciples, seek to see day after day, week after week, Sunday after Sunday. We seek to see the cross of Christ. It's what we proclaim to others. We proclaim, we proclaim the cross. It's what we remind ourselves of whenever we don't want to submit to the authority of Jesus. We remind ourselves that death leads to life by looking to the cross where the Son of Man laid down His life so that He could take it up again. The cross is where the separation of sin is done away with and the presence of God is open to everyone who believes. The cross, in other words, is the north star of every disciple's life. For in the cross, the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that God would make us a people who are driven to see and to know one thing, Christ and Him crucified. That we would know Christ through His cross. We don't keep ourselves on the road of discipleship. Christ keeps us on the road. And the way He keeps us is by giving us eyes to see His glory, primarily in His cross. Without apology then, with no apology, no caveat, no second explanation, without apology, this is the mission of the church. There are many things that a church could do that are good. There is one thing that a church must do in order to be faithful, and that's make disciples by proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. It's the one thing. We proclaim the truth about Jesus. We submit our lives to Jesus. We call others to do the same. And in the end, what keeps us going in that work of discipleship is not what we do, but what we see. <laughs> Even the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I pray that God would give us eyes, friends, that God would give us eyes to see in greater measure the glory of God revealed to us in His Son and that we would be about this one thing, Christ and Him crucified. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. We pray, Lord, that You would give us grace to know Christ and Him crucified, that we would remember, Father, that our calling is to be faithful to the one thing that we must do. Proclaim the truth about Jesus, submitting our lives to the authority of Jesus, calling others to do the same. Father, and when we grow weak in that work, we pray that You would remind us that it is Your sustaining grace revealed in Jesus Christ that keeps us going. Father, make us a church that is consumed with this one thing, to know Christ and Him crucified and to make Him known. Lord, I pray that You would open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and that in seeing Him, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is a work that only You can do. It is bigger than any church can hope to accomplish on its own. And so we plead with You, God, by your Holy Spirit, and for the glory of your precious Son's name, that you would do this here in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.